Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. There was a mid-20th century uh, Central European author, Friedrich Dürrenmatt, who wrote a story called The Tunnel, which has always fascinated me. It's a strange story. In, in The Tunnel, there's a, a young man, a protagonist, who's never named, but we're told some things about him. He's 24 years old. He's a student. He's fat. I like him already. Um, he wears sunglasses over his glasses, and he has cotton wool stuffed in his ears, all of which, Durenmat says, is to essentially insulate him from the world around him. He's a university student, and he travels on Sundays on the train. He lives in Switzerland, so he travels through the Alps to go to Zurich to his university. And as you can imagine, he's surrounded on the train by other people who are equally absorbed in their own lives. There's a girl next to him who's reading a novel. There's a man who's playing chess with himself. And, and everyone is kind of living in their own world. But in the story, as they're taking this weekly train trip, something strange happens. Usually the train enters into a tunnel, and a few seconds later it emerges. But this time, the young man notices when they enter into the tunnel, everything is dark outside, and it just keeps being dark. The train keeps going, but they never seem to leave the tunnel. He worries that he's on the wrong train somehow, that he's taken uh, uh, the the wrong uh, train in his confusion because he's not paying attention to the world around him. But he realizes eventually he's been in this tunnel for 10 minutes, 20 minutes, 30 minutes, that there are actually no tunnels in the Alps that are this long. And it's, it's a mystery to him. He tries to ask the people around him, but they don't want to be distracted from their novels and their chess games. So he goes and he finds a, a, a ticket collector. But the ticket collector doesn't know what's going on. So he goes and he finds the chief conductor, the authority, the guy who's running the show, and asks, what's happening? And the chief conductor says... I don't know. I'm not sure. And together, they go to the front of the train. They work their way uh, through the various cars of the train until they finally get to the one right before the engine where all the baggage is kept. And they pause for a moment and then climb into the engine to speak to the driver. And when they emerge into the engine, they discover that the driver's seat is empty. The train is picking up incredible speed. It's going really fast, over 100 miles an hour, and they realize it's not going straight, it's going down. That the, the train is actually going to the center of the earth, and nothing can stop it. And they're terrified by what's going to happen. The conductor turns to the young man, and the young man, because of the wind blowing from the speed, has lost his glasses, and the cotton wool flies out of his ears, and suddenly he's aware of reality for the first time in the story, the conductor says to him, what are we to do? And the young man now with his eyes open, seeing the world for what it really is, says nothing. God let us fall, and now we'll come upon him. I dug out my copy of this story because I'd read it years ago, and I wanted to make sure that, that I had understood everything that happens in it. And it's one of those stories, strangely, Almost everything is underlined. Like As I was reading it, I went through and underlined literally everything because all of it seems so suggestive of a kind of view of reality. Like this is a story written in an era where artists were grappling with the idea of the death of God. 
The train isn't just a train. The train is history. The train is time. The engine is what moves it forward, its purpose, its direction. But when the characters struggle forward to the front of the train to, to, to find out what's it all about, what is pulling things forward, what is the purpose behind this journey, they discover that, that the engine is empty, that there is no one at the wheel, that there is no purpose. This was the great trauma of that period of coming to terms with the idea of what it meant to be human beings in a world where there was no God. If you reach the front of the train, if you get to this point in history, you discover that no one's in control, that there is no purpose, and that nothing actually matters. What are we to do, the conductor says. The young man with his eyes open says, nothing. There is nothing we can do. We live in the the era after the era where artists struggle to come to terms with the death of God. In modern art, there's a lot of anxiety over what it means to live in a meaningless universe. But if you're under the age of, say, 35, you grew up in a world where, where the culture takes for granted that there is no God, that there is no purpose, that there is no uh, objective meaning to things, but we no longer experience that as a trauma. We just kind of shrug and say, well, that's just the way it is. That's just how it is. There is no purpose to it all. There is no ultimate goal that history is moving towards, and there's no author of the events that take place all around us. But you have to ask yourself if that's true, then what is the the reason for our waiting? As individuals living our lives, but also as human beings, as the race of human beings, over the generations, we have been waiting. We have been looking towards the future with anticipation, with hope. Is it really the case that all of that was pointless, that it was for nothing, that there was no reason behind it all, that 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 march of progress was in fact just an illusion? That's a question I'd like us to think about over the course of the next few weeks, because as I said, Advent is a season of longing. Every day of our lives, we long for things that we do not have, things we've been promised, where our hearts are filled with hope. But in this season, in particular, we, we, we step back and try to think about what it means to be creatures of longing, like what it means to be waiting, like to believe in things that you've never seen, that you've never touched, to be anticipating the fulfillment of promises that were made so long ago that a lot of people don't even think that they're real. What is the reason for our waiting? Think about what happens when you're forced to wait. When you're forced to wait, when you don't get what you want when you want it, there can sometimes be uh, frustrating consequences. If you're forced to wait too long, somebody says, oh, this is going to happen. You're going to experience this. Something is about to take place. And you wait, and it doesn't happen. You get bored. Sitting around waiting for something that happens, there's not a more tedious place you could find yourself in than the waiting room. You go to the waiting room at the doctor, and the magazines are all so far out of date that it shows. I mean, people have, have been waiting here for a long time, and they probably died before they were seen, right? It's kind of a place that tests you, having to sit in the waiting room like that, and, and, and you become bored. You're preoccupied. 
Now, because of our smartphones, it's harder to bore us. We can just sort of flip out of reality and, and, and play games or, or look on the internet or something, but that's another kind of boredom, like a, a sort of pointless distraction where we feel like we've filled the time, but we really haven't, and it passes in a way that means nothing. Disillusionment and doubt are often products of waiting too long. I, I had faith, I believed, I had hope, but then I had to wait. I had to wait too long, and those things that I felt then, I just I stopped feeling. I didn't feel them anymore. I became disillusioned. You tell a child something good is about to happen, make a promise that involves, for example, ice cream or something like that, and then you delay the fulfillment of that promise. See how that goes, right? If, if children are forced to wait too long, they melt down, right? They, they pitch a fit, right? They can endure boredom for the first 30 seconds or so, and then there are consequences. And, and as adults, we can laugh, you know, children, <laughs> they can't even wait. But uh, adults are the same, right? Adults are the same. You tell an adult something's going to happen, it doesn't happen, we just move on to other things. Right? We occupy our time with other things. We don't put trust in those promises because we were made to wait for it. And that wasn't what we were interested in doing. But waiting doesn't always work that way. Like waiting does sometimes lead to boredom and distraction and, and doubt and disillusionment. But sometimes waiting leads to reflection. Sometimes the time that you have to wait becomes time to examine yourself, to contemplate what it is you're waiting for. Sometimes waiting leads to understanding that you didn't possess when your wait began. It was only the passage of time that gave you the space to understand. Waiting can bring depth. It can bring maturity. Having to wait can actually build us up and strengthen us. It all depends on two things, though. First of all, it depends on whether there's something really happening. Is there really something to wait for? And secondly, whether or not we're able to develop the discipline or the patience to see the signs that something is actually taking place. That maybe the promise isn't fulfilled, but you can see movement. You can see indications. If we have patience and faith to see it. Because sometimes the only way you can be patient is to have faith that what you don't see happening is, in fact, taking place. I would argue to you that sanctification, in the process of living life faithfully in Christ, you could sum that up and say that sanctification means learning how to wait. Sanctification is learning how to wait well, in this season of longing, we're reminding ourselves of the importance of waiting on the Lord. It's not just the kids who would love to skip straight to Christmas. As soon as the gifts are under the tree, there's this, this primal urge to open them, right? It's hard to wait. It's hard to be patient. And yet this is a season that imposes patience on us that teaches us what it means to long for good things that you cannot have yet, to think about and meditate on what waiting 
really means. There's a lesson to learn from patient longing. What can we learn from patiently longing? That's what this series over Advent, hopefully, is going to be exploring. You've heard it said before of Christmas, uh, Jesus is the reason for the season. We're constantly uh, concerned and anxious that with the commercialization of Christmas, we've lost sight of what it's really about. Jesus is the reason for the season, but the question that I'd like to think about is one that comes before that. Not what is the reason for the Christmas season, but what is the reason for our waiting? What is the reason for what's happening now beforehand, before we get to jump forward to the gifts spread out before us? What is that all about? Why did God's people have to wait so long for Jesus to come? Why didn't he show up in Genesis 4? And the Bible would have been a pamphlet. You could have memorized the whole thing. Why didn't it go that way? Why did they have to wait? And why, after Jesus came, did he then ascend and and say, guess what, everybody, it's time to wait again. And we've still been waiting 2,000 years and counting. Why are we waiting? Well, when we look at our text in Genesis 13, we can start to answer the question. One of the puzzle pieces is fitted in here. We can see one of the things we're waiting for is for the seed to come. We're waiting for the seed to come. Now, before you get to the story of the fall in Genesis 3, of course, Genesis 1 and 2 give us the story of creation, but they also give, as kind of a sub-point of that, what it means to be human. If you ask yourself, uh, what's a human being? What is our purpose? What were we made for? You start finding the answers when you look at the story of how human beings were created and what they were commanded to do. In Genesis 1, we discover that human beings are made in God's image. All human beings, male and female, all human beings, believer and unbeliever, are made in the image of God. There are things true of us as a result of that. One of those things is we're all worshipers at heart. We're made in his image to reflect his glory. Uh, as mirrors, as it were, to hold up to the glory of God. It's what we're made for, made to do. There's a fulfillment that comes to us in that. But God, in making us in his image, also made us to have dominion over what he had created. If you read Genesis 127, you find that we're made in God's image. In 128, he gives human beings dominion over the various kinds of things he's created. Adam and Eve, before the fall, have jobs. They work in the garden. They're gardeners. They're cultivators. They're people making culture. And if you think about that, it tells us something important about the human calling. God placed our first parents in a raw environment and called them to give form to it, to give shape to it, to shepherd it into its fullness that it had a potential that needed to be realized. And the purpose of their rule was to realize that potential in the same way that God in his rule over us develops and grows and restores us. So you see that happening here. This is what human beings are for. We're also made to be righteous before God. In Genesis 2.17, the commandment is given not to eat of the forbidden tree. Not to eat of that tree. There's an expectation of obedience that human beings were created with. And that's what's sacrificed in Genesis 3. 
when we read the story of the fall and they eat the fruit, humanity's temptation, our disobedience, and its consequences. Interestingly, in Genesis 3, 5, when the serpent is discoursing with Eve, one of the promises that he makes to her is a promise that is actually quite appealing. The promise is that if you eat of this forbidden fruit, your eyes will be opened. This is the reason God doesn't want you to do it. It's not because it'll kill you. It's because it'll make you like him. He's, he's, he doesn't want you to, to ascend to that level. He doesn't want your eyes to be open. He's trying to, to deceive you, to keep you in your place. And if you eat of this, your eyes will be opened. And which one of us hasn't longed for that kind of enlightenment? to want to have our eyes open, to see things as they really are, to understand the truth of things, to possess a kind of wisdom that sees through the lies, you can understand the appeal. But something different happens once they've eaten of the fruit. Their eyes are open. Their eyes are open, but what they see is not uh, how great they are. What they see is their shame. When they eat of the fruit and their eyes are open, what they see is that they're naked. What they see is that they ought to be hidden. What they see is is really a shame that didn't exist before. That's what their eyes are open to. In in fact, in sin, their eyes are open, we might say, to a new kind of blindness. John Chrysostom says it wasn't the eating from the tree that opened their eyes. They could see even before eating. Instead, the eating from this tree was the symptom of their disobedience and the breaking of the command given by God. And through their guilt, they consequently divested themselves of the glory surrounding them, rendering themselves unworthy of such wonderful esteem. In other words, in Genesis 1 and 2, all the glory that is heaped on humanity, the greatness that is embedded into us in our creation, all of it is cast away. All of it is set aside by giving in to sin. And that's the reason that we need Salvation. The reason Genesis 3.15 cries out to us, though, is that it is a ray of light in the midst of so much darkness. You read the story of the fall, and it's a tragic story, but it doesn't end the way you might think it would. It certainly doesn't end the way Adam and Eve had every right to expect that it would. They'd been told that if they ate of the tree, they would surely die. And so it was reasonable to expect, as God was there to pass out the sentences and give the curses, that, that essentially he was going to pronounce death on them, that they were going to be destroyed. That would have been the right thing to expect. And when we look at the curse, we look at, at Adam having to, to work by the sweat of his brow, and nature is no longer going to cooperate, there's going to be this great struggle, that Eve is going to bring forth children in pain, that it's going to be this great anguish in order to reproduce, we think, man, that's terrible. These are consequences of the curse, and it's so bad, and it is. But if you were expecting to be annihilated, it probably doesn't read as badly as it does to us. But they've been told that they would die. But instead, something different takes place. Mercy is shown. And Genesis 3.15 is the first hint that that mercy is going to be given. As they're overhearing, as they're listening to what's being said to the serpent, they get to Genesis 3.15, and hear God say, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. 
Offspring there is a word in the King James translated seed. Uh, The beauty of this is in order to have offspring, you have to be alive. So if you were expecting a death sentence to be passed and then you hear that your offspring will bruise the head of the offspring of the serpent, that suggests it's going to be okay. You're actually going to survive this. Theologians call this the proto-evangelium. It's the first hint of the gospel, the first intimation that death will not have the last word in the story of humanity. Satan wants to rule over us, but ultimately humanity will triumph over Satan. It's significant, I think, when you consider how many Christians, well-meaning Christians, if you ask them, where does the gospel start? Where in the Bible would I go to find the gospel? A lot of Christians would say, well, that doesn't begin until the New Testament. Or maybe if they know a little better, they would say, well, it it doesn't begin until the New Testament, but there are some hints that you can find in the prophets that, that are very suggestive of the gospel. In fact, if we have eyes to see, we see that the gospel doesn't come in later. Here at the beginning of this story, the gospel is emerging. The gospel is being seen, not fully formed, not fully revealed, but but the gospel is showing itself as early as Genesis 3. Genesis 3.15 is the beginning of what we call progressive revelation. Like God has a plan of salvation. He has it from the beginning, but he doesn't show his cards all at once. He doesn't lay it out. He doesn't sit Adam and Eve down and say, don't worry about it. Here's what I've got in mind. Let me answer all of your questions. Instead, he doles out the information bit by bit by bit over time. There's a famous passage in Calvin's Institutes where he describes this progressive revelation. He said, The Lord held to this orderly plan in administering the covenant of his mercy. As the day of full revelation approached with the passing of time, the more he increased each day the brightness of its manifestation. In other words, the closer he got to the time, the more he revealed about what was going to take place. Accordingly, at the beginning, when the first promise of salvation was given to Adam in Genesis 3.15, it glowed like a feeble spark. It glowed like a feeble spark, a, a bit of light that could easily be overcome. A spark doesn't mean there's going to be a fire. I have a fire pit in my backyard. Trust me, a spark doesn't mean anything. Right? It, it could totally go the other way. And in fact, in my experience, a column of flame doesn't mean anything <laughs> about what is in store for the future. But this is a feeble spark. If this was what your hope was in, if Genesis 3.15 was all you had, man, imagine the faith that would be required to put your life on the line for that extent of revelation. But as it was added to, The light grew in fullness, breaking forth increasingly and shedding its radiance more widely. At last, when all the clouds were dispersed, Christ, the Son of Righteousness, fully illumined the whole earth. You think of the prologue to John's gospel, the light that cannot be overcome by the darkness. This is Christ fully revealed. What was only perceptible in signs and shadows before is now apparent to the eye. It is clear in Christ what the gospel was all about. But for generations, for millennia, it wasn't. And they waited with faith. They didn't know 
exactly what their faith was in. If they had described it to you, it wouldn't exactly sound right to you. It would sound a little incomplete. That was the nature of faith. Genesis 3.15 is where the long wait of humanity begins, where it has its origin, where this life of longing that we live starts. The wait for what? What's this history all about? It's the history of human redemption. The story of humanity, from that point forward, is the story of humanity's redemption and salvation. That plan working itself out over time. Okay, but by what means? At this point, the answer was not clear. The means were uncertain. It wasn't exactly clear what it was God was going to do. What was certain was that this salvation, whatever it was, would come through the woman's offspring, through her seed. It would come through the line of the woman. Humanity will triumph through the victory over Satan of a human being not yet born. That's as much as you could know in Genesis 3.15, but even that is a lot. Even that is a lot. From the very beginning, we have this much. There is a son through whom the promised salvation will come, and we will know him through his lineage. We will recognize him through his birth. We're waiting for the seed to come, and it's in the Gospels that we discover that the seed of the woman, the offspring that was promised, is Jesus Christ our Lord. It's then that we have this full illumination, but over thousands of years, people often got the identification wrong, trying to to put their finger on who this this son would be. There are scholars who look at at Genesis 4.1, which is when... uh, Eve has a son and names him and think, well, well, Eve seems to have believed, based on her naming of her son, that he was the fulfillment of that promise. But, of course, the name of that son was Cain, and he was not the one who was promised. But there were other mistakes that were made or other, let's say, incomplete identifications. If you were Abraham and you were given a covenant promise that, that all the nations would be blessed through your line, you would have good reason to think that in Isaac, all of those promises are fulfilled. When in fact, some are and some wait. Same thing is true when you uh, go to 2 Samuel chapter 7 and you look at the covenant with David, the kingdom that will be established forever. David had every reason to expect that this was a promise being made concerning his son, Solomon. And on some level, it was. But in another way, it wasn't. In another way, it pointed forward to a son still to come. So as God reveals himself, he reveals himself with subtlety, in, in layers right, that are capable of being misunderstood. The messianic prophecies of the Old Testament bring more clarity They prophesy the coming of a son. Isaiah proclaims Emmanuel, God with us, in Isaiah 7, 14. Micah says he will be born in Bethlehem. So the focus becomes clearer over time. And these are the the footholds that New Testament authors connect back to in order to make the connection really clear. In the full illumination of the apostolic era, it's clear that Jesus is the seed of the woman. And in Jesus, 
humanity will triumph over Satan. Paul says in Galatians 4, 4 and 5, that when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Born of woman. They insist over and over in the gospel accounts uh, the birth of Christ, emphasizing his lineage, that he comes from the right line in order to be the one who fulfills the prophecies, but also the fact that he's born of a woman. Right? He's the son of God, but he's born of Mary. And that's emphasized over and over again. And you see the connection. It's important to be able to point back to the fact that this is the seed of the woman, the offspring of the woman who has come to bring salvation. Romans 16.20, Paul directly alludes to our passage. He's speaking to the Romans and, and instilling hope in them, giving them hope that the future won't be like the present. He says these words, The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. God will soon crush Satan under your feet. Under your feet. There's a kind of already not yet quality to those words when you think about it. Satan's final defeat is not yet. He didn't mean God will will defeat Satan in, in Rome in, in your lifetime. John records in Revelation 20 the final triumph over Satan, the final victory over Satan. But Paul is talking about God crushing Satan under your feet in time. In Christ, in other words, we are victorious over Satan even now. Even now. That if we are in Christ, we've been promised not just triumph over Satan eschatologically at the end of time, but also in this life that he will be crushed under heel. Calvin says the promise to crush Satan's head pertains to Christ and all his members in common. So I deny that believers can ever be conquered or overwhelmed by him. Often, indeed, are they distressed but not so deprived of life as not to recover. They fall under violent blows, but afterward they are raised up. They are wounded, but not fatally. In short, they so toil throughout life that at the last they obtain the victory. They persevere. Despite being battered, despite being set upon, they persevere. They have triumph over Satan, over temptation, and over sin through the power of Christ in them. That is the promise to us. We're waiting, we're longing, but we're not doing nothing. As we wait for the seed to come, we are experiencing triumph, victory. We are struggling against Satan's dominion in our lives. 17th century theologian Samuel Rutherford is uh, remembered for mainly his book Lex Rex now, but, but uh, he also kept up a, a correspondence with many people, and where in his letters he attempted to comfort those who were at a loss, who were struggling. And in one of these letters of comfort, he writes these words, which occasionally ring in my ear. He says, Ye know not what the Lord is working out of this, but ye shall know it hereafter. Ye know not what the Lord is working out of this, but ye shall know it hereafter. 
You don't know what God is working out of these circumstances. You don't know what he's doing with what's happening in your life. You don't understand what's happening as you wait and as you long and as promises go unfulfilled. You don't see it, but you shall. You will. You will see it one day. There's so much in those words, so much encouragement if we could believe that. Our first parents, Adam and Eve, didn't know what the Lord was working out in the fall, in their sin, but they did know it hereafter. They didn't know at the time, but they do know it now. Abraham didn't know what God was working out through this covenant, but he knows now. David, King David, didn't know what the promises made to him really meant, but now he knows. You don't know what the Lord is working out at this moment. You don't know what he's doing in your life, but you shall know it hereafter. You will know. If history is a train and the fall of humanity is a dark tunnel, if you could reach the engine, you would not find the driver's seat empty. You would not find that there is no direction. There may be darkness now, but there's much more light than there was. It may not be fully bright, fully illuminated, but we see so much more than we once did. And those who patiently wait, those who long for all that God promised, for those the tunnel will end, and the light will fully overcome the darkness. We're waiting for the seed to come. We're waiting for Jesus Christ. Is Jesus the reason for the season? Yes. But he's also the reason for the waiting. And this is a season to savor that anticipation, to reflect on all that is promised to us in Christ, and to savor the waiting for the fulfillment of those promises. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.